we concluded a series, uh, well, the first part of what is a very long series of uh, lessons from the exilic and post-exilic period. One of the topics that is critical in this period is the topic of the covenant. All right, we talked about the fact that within the Christian community, God is, is uh, either allegorized the Jewish people that we today are no longer relevant, all right? One way or another, we're not relevant uh, within a, a, a major stream of Christian thought. The Jewish people uh, uh, rejected the Messiah and, and therefore basically are, are, not, are no longer his people. Everything's spiritualized. Wherever the people of God are, that's Israel, spiritual Israel. On the other side, the Torah has been done away with, and Jewish people are still God's covenant people based on Abraham, but uh, the Mosaic covenant and everything related to it is done away with. Both of those views uh, have, are problematic for us as Jewish people, in that the Jewish concept is the fact that God makes mutually binding covenants with mankind that he is only able to keep. And think about that in terms of your relationship with God. We talked about that this pattern exists. Both Israel, with Israel, our people, as well as with all believers. This pattern we're going to see as we continue to go through this entire set of lessons. Uh, this is our synagogue's view on God's covenant. We believe, in essence, in one covenant. God made a covenant with Israel. That covenant began Genesis chapter 12, and then it opened up and expanded and, and took on additional elements as it went along, including God's instructions for our people as to how we're supposed to live. All right, that's what is seen often uh, in in the uh, in the considered the Torah, but the whole thing is considered really Torah. It's God's covenant with Israel. All right, and through Israel, a blessing to all the world. This morning, what we're going to do, and before I begin, I want to thank Esther Lang, because Esther Lang created a wonderful PowerPoint of all the history of Israel, and I have used some of that as a basis for this next presentation. Here we have a picture as we start our overview of Israel, approximately 14 to 1000 BCE. Uh, this is where this comes in. You can see here division by tribe. And uh, these are the people over here who came up with this, but I'm not going to reference them too much. All right, so the, the nation, the, the tribal uh, you know, divisions, however you want to talk about it, this is Israel up until you get to the monarchy. Monarchy, and these dates up here, by the way, these are just generalities. If you're a stickler for dates, just talk to me afterwards to complain, but don't complain now. The, uh, this is probably what, we, what would be considered the, the extent of the United Kingdom. Uh, you know, uh, the influence goes up into Damascus. It probably exists all the way down here. But uh, safely to say, this is what Israel looked like under David and Solomon at its zenith, at its high point, all right? A lot of land, a little bit, uh, does it go backwards? Oh, yeah, good, all right. So, you know, kind of on parallel with that, fine. All right, now the divided kingdom. This is just a quick overview. Remember Solomon, basically his son Rehoboam was, a, was not very smart. <laughs> and he decided to antagonize people and so half the nation divided and left. So you've got the 10 tribes approximately up here. What's really, uh, you've got down here actually two tribes, Simeon, three tribes, four tribes. Judah, Benjamin, Simeon is down here, and then the Levites, all right, all down here. Yeah, but anyway, so you've got what is the extent of the divided kingdom. Northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. And 
this fluctuated depending on whether or not they had a good king who was following God or a bad king. But that is considered the extent of the divided kingdom. That continues all the way down to 586, 586 being the date for the destruction of the temple under the Babylonians. Now, what we have here is a picture of the Assyrian Empire. I took out Neo-Assyrian because most people don't know there's a different Assyrian. So here we have the Assyrian Empire, approximately 911 to 609. 609 being when it was officially destroyed by the, by the Babylonians and the Medes. Judah is right here. You see that? So the Assyrians start up here, conquered northern Israel, and exile them. All right? Take them away. Uh, and we'll read about that in a second. And Judah becomes kind of a vassal state under Hezekiah, under the Assyrians. In fact, turn with me to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 17. You'll notice here three books listed. Hosea, Amos, and Isaiah. Hosea, uh, Hosea and Amos basically focusing their prophetic statements toward the northern kingdom. Isaiah writing at the time of the northern kingdom. 2 Kings chapter 17. Uh, feel free to turn there and follow along. I'm going to bounce around a little bit. Page 370. 370 in our Tanakh. All right? So beginning in verse 1, it says, In the twelfth year of King Ahaz of Judah... Hoshea, son of Elah, becomes king in Samaria over Israel and he reigned nine years. He did what was evil in Adonai's eyes, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. King Shalmaneser of Assyria marched against him, so Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria caught Hoshea conspiring. He had sent messengers to King So of Egypt and had not paid the tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done every year. Therefore the king of Assyria seized him and put him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded the entire country, marched up to Samaria, and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria, in the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He placed them in Hala and Habor on the Gozan River and in the towns of the Medes. Now it was so because the men of Israel. Now it was so because the men of Israel had sinned against Adonai their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. Instead, they followed the customs of the nations whom Adonai had dispossessed before B'nai Yisrael, yet which the kings of Israel practiced. B'nai Yisrael secretly did things against Adonai their God that were not right. They built shrines for themselves in all their settlements, from watchtowers to fortified cities, and they set up pillars and Asherah poles for themselves on every high hill and under every leafy tree. There they burned incense on all the high places, like the nations whom Adonai had driven out before them. So they did wicked things to provoke Adonai. They worshipped idols about which Adonai had said to them, You shall not do this thing. Yet Adonai had forewarned Israel and Judah by the hand of every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the Torah which I commanded your fathers, and which I sent to you by the hand of my servants, the prophets. Yet they would not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers, who did not trust in Adonai their God. So they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers, and his testimonies that he testified against them. Instead, they went after futile things and became futile, following the nations that surrounded them, about whom Adonai had charged them not to emulate. So they abandoned all the mitzvot of Adonai their God. So they made for themselves molten images 
two calves, and made an Asherah pole, and bowed down to all the host of heavens, and worshipped Baal. And they made their sons and daughters pass through the fire, practiced divination and enchantments, and sold themselves to do evil in Adonai's eyes to provoke him. So Adonai became very angry with Israel and banished them from his presence. There was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. Even Judah did not keep the mitzvot of Adonai their God, but followed the customs which Israel had practiced. So Adonai spurned all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and delivered them into the hands of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam some Nebat king. Then Jeroboam drew Israel away from following Adonai and made him commit a great sin. The men of Israel kept walking in all the sins of Jeroboam committed. They did not turn away from them until Adonai banished Israel from his presence as he spoke by the hand of all of his servants, the prophets. So Israel has been exiled from their own land to Assyria to this day. Second Kings written uh, by an unknown person writing, I believe, before the Babylonian captivity. Wow! God got ticked off. And he said, that's it. I'm done with Israel. Israel to me is no more. I disown them. I don't care about them. They're going to sit in the captivity and disappear. Certainly sounds bad. This is the problem. Book of Hosea. (laughs) You know? Tells us about the fact that God, God can't throw away his children. What does God do with his child? What What does a father do with a child that's disobedient? Maybe illegal in some states, but he spanks them. He disciplines them. Could be a timeout. Could be a little potch. Could be the belt comes out. But God disciplines. God disciplines those he loves. God is disciplining Israel for their sin. Anybody, anybody here ever been disciplined by God? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. God does it because he loves us. That's a really important principle to understand. God disciplined because he loves. And when you read this, this is like this amazing statement by the author in 2 Kings that we don't know. But he is writing what is a summational statement. Maybe, he's, maybe, maybe this was added to later on uh, after the, the, uh, the captivity because this was not concluded until, as we'll see in a minute, the captivity of, of, of Judah. But Israel is gone. Now, other passages say when the nation divided that those who followed God came south, including all the priests. It mentions God getting ticked off at Judah. But remember, Simeon is within Judah. All right? So one more tribe, plus Benjamin, plus the Levites, plus all those who followed God. Let's never forget Anna of the tribe of Asher, who shows up in the book of Luke, excited to see the Messiah. <laughs> okay? The tribes did not disappear. But there was, a, there was exile. There was exile. We're going to see a video on exile real quick. This is a great video made by the Ir David group uh, out of Jerusalem. Toward the end of the 7th century BCE, the Babylonian Empire quickly conquers the lands to the west of the Euphrates River, including the Kingdom of Judah. When King Jehoiakim of Judah tries to rebel against Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar quashes the rebellion and exiles the rulers and generals. 
Just 10 years later, Jehoiakim's brother Zedekiah, the new king of Judah, rebels again against the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar is furious. He decides to teach Judah a lesson it will never forget. On the 10th of Tevet, 588 BCE, he arrives at the walls of Jerusalem with a huge army and besieges the city. I'm standing by the northern wall of the city. This tower, known as the Israelite Tower, was uncovered by Professor Nachman Avigad in 1970. From the top of the tower, Zedekiah's soldiers watched in fear as hundreds of thousands of Babylonian archers, horsemen, and infantrymen stood before the walls. From here, they saw the Babylonian Engineering Corps close in on the city and lay siege to it. Cut off from the fields outside the walls, the people of Jerusalem now have no source of food. Hunger affects everybody, especially the children. The tongue of the suckling child cleaves to the roof of his mouth for thirst. The young children ask for bread and no one breaks it for them. Corpses pile up in the streets and disease rages. As the siege drags on, fear and desperation grow. The harvest is past, summer has ended, and we are not saved. The terror reaches its peak when the Babylonian battering rams advance toward the walls and begin to pound them. The noise is deafening, the earth trembles. Soon, the conquering forces will break through the defenses and the city will be lost. Just at this most critical moment, King Zedekiah decides to abandon the battle. Along with his soldiers, he sneaks through alleys under cover of night and escapes through the southern gate to the Kidron Valley and then from there to the desert. And it came to pass that when King Zedekiah of Judah and all the men of war saw them, they fled and went out of the city by night by way of the king's garden, by the gate between the two walls, and he went out by way of the plain. Zedekiah can't escape his fate. Soon afterwards, on the plains of Jericho, he is caught by the Babylonians and cruelly punished by Nebuchadnezzar. Meanwhile, the Babylonian army increases its pressure on the northern gate. Right here, near the tower adjacent to the city gate, a fierce battle takes place. Babylonian archers shoot thousands of arrows at the Israelite defenders, providing cover for the Babylonian infantry as they charge the city gate. The Israelite defenders fire back with all their might. Beneath the layer of ash here, Professor Nachman Avigad uncovered arrowhead shot by Babylonian archers, right next to Israelite arrowhead shot by Zedekiah's soldiers in their desperate attempt to repel the enemy. Despite their efforts, the Israelite soldiers, hungry and exhausted, cannot stop the powerful, organized troops spread out before them. On the 9th of Tammuz, 586 BCE, after more than a year and a half under siege, the northern wall is breached and the Babylonian army bursts into the city. The Babylonian soldiers slaughter the people of the city and wreak destruction everywhere. The cries of pain of the victims, many of them women, children, and the elderly, are heard from every corner. But Jerusalem will suffer its most deadly blow a month later. 
On the seventh of Av, Nebuzaradan, the Babylonian commander, arrives in Jerusalem and orders it razed to the ground. And in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great man's house, he burned with fire. Here in the royal compound in the city of David, among buildings that collapsed in the horrific fire, archaeologist Igal Shilo uncovers a thick layer of black ash. It turns out to be the destruction layer of Jerusalem. The diggers' faces are black with the soot and dirt that covered the ruins from the burnt buildings. Excitedly, the excavators unearthed 2,600-year-old buildings, one after another. They also discovered eating utensils, furniture, and seals, all buried under the ash of the Great Fire. In the sweltering summer of 586 BCE, all of Jerusalem is set ablaze. On the 9th of Av, the temple, the symbol of the spiritual covenant between the Israelites and their God, goes up in flames. From that terrible day until now, the 9th of Av has been a day of intense mourning for the entire Jewish people. Nebuchadnezzar finishes off the destruction with an act that will ensure that Jerusalem will never rebel again. He raises the city walls to their foundations. Now, their heads bowed, the exiles march to Babylon, carrying musical instruments among their meager possessions. But the melody that played in Jerusalem through countless turbulent days is now silenced. In its place arise the hushed tones of the exile's lament. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and wept as we remembered Zion. On its willows we hung our harps, for there our captors demanded a song of us, and our tormentors demanded mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? All right. The, uh, the exile takes place. Why did the exile take place? Sin. Well, sin. The people were worshiping the idols. There was idol worship. It's interesting, when you go in the archaeological layers, I mean, it's almost impossible to find anything that would be consistent with, with following God, except for Jews didn't eat pork. It's interesting, right? They found a little bit related to the temple and the fact that Jewish sites, the people did not eat pork. So if you're like, but I really like my sausage pizza or whatever, just remember, it's been a Jewish commitment to lifestyle for a very long time. But in terms of worshiping the God of, of, uh, of Israel, according to the Torah, very little to show for it in terms of the general layers of civilization. The Israelite people, our ancestors, the Jewish people, were not really following God with whole hearts. They were, they were really given over to idolatry. God punished them. And he punished them with the Babylonians. Again, this massive Babylonian empire, which really only lasted less than 100 years, all right, in terms of what it was. Nebuchadnezzar... Uh, defeated the Assyrians with the help of the Medes, and then uh, he uh, conquered you know, Judah, went all the way down into Egypt. Uh, but it only lasted until Belshazzar, 
All right? So it really didn't last very long, and this is all detailed in the book of Daniel and other texts. Uh, these uh, books, all written during this time, prophetic books, uh, Lamentations, obviously, Jeremiah's book related to uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, which we read at Tishbaab. Uh, if you haven't read any of these for a while, we'll talk about some of them. Daniel is considered in the writings, uh, but I think it's, it's, it's a prophetic book as well. Uh, Daniel during the exile, Ezekiel during the exile. Jeremiah right at the beginning of it all into the exile. Lamentations after the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, the rest of these leading up to the Babylonian destruction. Habakkuk basically written around 605 or so, right uh, in essence just before the battle of Carchemish, right during the time of Josiah. One thing I want to mention and nobody talks about it, and we'll find out about this a little bit more is you must understand, and, and actually do me, do me a favor, turn to 2 Kings 25. 2 Kings 25. Cha- chapters 24 and 25 deal really with the exile, and that video took care of that. But take a look at uh, chapter 25, verses 27 through uh, the end of the ch- book, page 381, page 381. It says, Now it came to pass in the 37th year of the exile of King Jehoiakim of Judah, on the 27th day of the 12th month, that King Evelmoradach of Babylon, in the year he became king, released King Jehoiakim of Judah from prison. He spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the throne of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So he changed his prison garments and regularly ate bread in the king's presence all the days of his life. As for his allowance, a regular allowance was granted to him by the king, an allotment for each day, all the days of his life. Here we have this very unique statement about after 37 years of prison. Now, Jehoiakim, or Jehoiakim is the, is, it's a little confusing in the text, but he seems to be very young, maybe eight uh, years old, when he actually goes into exile. We do know, and it states right here, according to archaeological records, that he is actually referenced in 592 BCE. 592 BCE reference as receiving food rations. <laughs> All right? So that's kind of cool when uh, extra biblical literature supports biblical point. And so we do know that, uh, according to this text, he's elevated. We do know that Shealtiel, his son, and Zerubbabel, we'll talk about them later, they show up in the biblical text as leaders of the Jewish people. And so uh, for a period of time, even under, under the Babylonians, a, a descendant of David, a right descendant of David, okay, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim has the right to the throne. All right, So he is recognized as being a rightful king of Judah and so is allowed to reign as a king, um, as basically a... Uh, um, what is the term for it? A leader in exile. Uh, this position is called the Exilarch, and it continues all the way down into, uh, I think, about 1200. And I have a very good friend of mine, well, not a good friend of mine, but I have a, a friend of mine uh, named Mitch, who lives, uh, Mitch Diane, who lives here in the Skokie area. And Mitch is a descendant of the Exilarch. His family, they're Jews from Syria, his family key, has family records that clearly go back to the Exilarch. And his very name, Dayan, means judge. All right? And so his family were judges among the Jewish people, probably because of their descendancy, sons of David. All right? Very few people can honestly be called a son of David. 
But Mitch has an incredible, he does, it's it. He is, he is a descendant of the XLR. And uh, this will come up in a discussion later, but it's an important historical thing to understand. Finally, it was done away with uh, around 1200, this position. Now, I want to show you this. This is the Persian Empire. Persians came in, defeated the Babylonians in the book of Daniel. This is when Belshazzar is destroyed by Cyrus or Darius. That's called the Persian Empire. They eventually get destroyed by the, um, uh, by the uh, Greeks in 532. That's Alexander the Great. But during this period of time, it's really the post-exilic period. The post-exilic period is basically uh, starts with the people going back to the land, 536 B.C., and continues all the way up, as we'll see, right into zero. And during this time, the books of 1 and 2 Chronicles are written probably by Ezra, it's my guess, Nehemiah, Esther. Esther, we have no idea who wrote Esther. We're going to talk about it in two weeks because it's fascinating. Because the book of Esther contains intimate understanding of the palace... In, in the Persian Empire that only a person living at the time would know because everything was destroyed, all right? Prophetic books of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are written during this period of time. Uh, let's take a look in the text again, Second Chronicles chapter 36. Second Chronicles chapter 36. <clears throat> right at the end of the book. Second Chronicles chapter 36, which will take us ultimately into uh, what we're going to be studying for a few weeks, which is the book of Ezra. Page 906. Page 906. Okay. Second Chronicles 36, beginning in verse 22. Now in the first year of King Darius, King Cyrus of Persia, fulfilling the word of Adonai by the mouth of Jeremiah, Adonai stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, Adonai, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever among you of all his people may go up and may Adonai as God be with him. What's fascinating about this is this was an edict that he proclaimed for all the exiled peoples. So you, if you were in exile from Lebanon someplace or Egypt, he told them all, go home to where you come from, I'll give you some money, rebuild your religion, which is basically rebuild your national identity. That's what kind of it meant. And God uses that to get the Jewish people back into the land of Israel. Now, though, take a look. This is Judah. <laughs> that's all that's left. You notice Hebron isn't even included. God punishes Israel. And Israel really suffers because of their sin, all right? We're going to talk about this, but this is a very small little piece of geography that is left to the Jewish people. It's not until you get to the Hashmonean period where it expands. And then it's really under Herod who gets a big chunk of the land back, all right, even though we don't like him. See how small that is? Very, very little, little piece of the land that God gave to our people. But remember, God said that he would restore us. That's, again, part of the teachings in the post-exilic literature is don't be discouraged. Follow me, obey my instructions, and I will bless you. All right? And God ultimately blessed, and then because of sin, uh, we're going to see this again. Now, silent years. Anybody hear of what they call the silent years? Christians talk about this all the time. The reason the Christians call it the silent years is because it's after the writing of the prophet Malachi, 
okay, up until Matthew. So around 425 to whenever Matthew wrote, time of Yeshua is zero, or three or four BCE, depending on how you want to do it. These are not silent years. During this period of time, the Greek conquer, which will, uh, up oh, the Greeks take over from the Persians. Uh, the Romans take over after them. Uh, the Septuagint is written. Hanukkah occurs, that whole thing. The synagogue is established, probably it could be as established as early as the exilic period, we don't know. But certainly the synagogue comes into establishment along with the services that we, these traditional services which we have, along with the uh, prayers, the Amidah, as well, as well as the Parashot, the readings, all come out of this period. And then, of course, the canon itself is completed. Some of the Psalms come out of this period. You know, some of the Psalms come out of the, this. They're late. They're included in the canon, okay? But they're, they're late. So they're not really silent. They just seem so. <laughs> the Greeks, of course, this is Alexander the Great, and that we kind of know a little bit about because of Hanukkah which we're not celebrating, we're celebrating Purim. So I want to wrap it up real quick, a couple of quick questions. How well do you know the background of the scriptures? Some of you know them well. I know Esther knows them really well because she loves history, okay? But how about you? You may say, oh, history. Uh, then there's some really good videos out there. How well do you know the background of the scriptures? It's really important to understand the scriptures because understanding their background really helps you understand how it all works together. All right. How much time do you intentionally make daily to grow your understanding of who God is and of the scriptures God has given us? All right. How much time do you carve out? Hopefully you, you carve out devotional time where you just you either hear or read the scriptures and you think about it for yourself. But with all the technology available, you can get a podcast that'll teach you or watch short videos that will teach you. There's all sorts of things available. Really the question is, how much time are you intentionally making on a daily basis to grow in your understanding of God's scripture and of God himself. And then the last, what are you planning to take with you when you die? <laughs> yeah. Every day, I think it would be helpful for us if we wake up and say, if I were to die today, what would be the sum of my life? I know it sounds morbid. What do you want to take with you when you die? More than anything else, as followers of Messiah, all that matters is our relationship with God and the impact we make in the lives of people. You can enjoy all the things you enjoy, all right? Just remember that in the Lord and in His name, we can enjoy life. We should enjoy life. But if you just enjoy you know, money and, and, and you have pride and, and you like to accumulate stuff for your own interest, to consider that one day you will die and all of that will be meaningless. All right. During the exile period, these people lost everything. They were a complete loss of all things. Seventy years ago, I've been talking to some people who survived the Second World War. <laughs> Think about the people, they lost everything. Whether they were the Germans on one side or anybody in Europe. Total devastation. You know, we live in America where, thank God, there's rule of law, but folks, it may not continue forever. What are you planning on taking with you when you die? Something just to chew on in this period where all this disruption we're looking at and yet ultimately the people come out and choose to follow God. My prayer is that it is your desire to follow God, to do it in the way that he leads you, but to have his values for your life because in that there is true meaning and purpose in life. Let's close with a word of prayer. God, we thank you so much for the truth of your scriptures and the challenge of it.
God, we thank you for the fact that you loved us so much you've disciplined us. You sent us into exile because we didn't follow your instructions. We chose other gods, but God, you still preserved us. And God, we repented, and even now we still sin and we repent more. We live in Galut, God. We live in Skokie and Chicago. We live in this area, not in the land. And so we recognize even now we still are in exile, but you have not forgotten us. You have not forsaken us. By your will, you draw us back, and ultimately you will bring, it, bring us all back to the land. But God, in the meantime, help us to choose each day to know you and to live for you. And make of our lives, God, that which would honor you and have meaning for all eternity. We pray all this in Yeshua's name.